0: Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 34 When in Rome. Before we get into today's interview with Dr. James White from Alpha and Omega Ministries, I just want to thank you all again who've been praying for me as I lose weight in preparation for my next powerlifting competition in June. I mentioned last week that I was having a frustrating week. Well, this week went much better, particularly after adjusting my diet, having recently watched Fathead, a conservative response to Morgan Spurlock's Supersize Me. Now, I enjoyed Supersize Me, but I must say that Fathead presents some pretty compelling evidence demonstrating... Well, you check the movie out for yourself and you'll see. Suffice it to say that that the adjustments that I've made as a result have been working for me so far. Today marks two weeks of dieting, exercising more, and tracking my weight. And at 287 this morning, I've lost 13.2 pounds in those two weeks, putting me well ahead of where I need to be to have gotten down to 242 by June 25th. Please do continue to keep me in your prayers, though. If you want to follow my journey more closely, you could check out my powerlifting blog at chrisdatepower.blogspot.com. And if you have any suggestions or if you want my advice when it comes to either weight loss or weightlifting or whatever, feel free to contact me at theapologetics at hotmail.com. Another thing I want to mention is that I've got something very interesting lined up for an upcoming episode of the The Apologetics podcast. As will probably be mentioned in the course of today's interview, my guest today has participated in numerous public moderated debates. It may in fact be what he's best known for. I bring that up because my friend Michael Burgos, who appeared in episode 11 to discuss Oneness Pentecostals, has been challenged to a debate by a Oneness Pentecostal, and because Michael and I think it'll benefit you, my listeners, I've agreed to moderate the debate and host it on my podcast still tentative the plan is that Mike will be affirming the statement the son personally pre-existed the incarnation with the father and his opponent will be against it I'm announcing this not only to pique your interest but also because I'm inviting you to participate at least in a sense the debates going to include a cross-examination period which of course every good debate should have and one of the things I suggested was kinda like an audience Q&A period in live debates after cross-examination I might ask Mike and his opponent a question or two each, questions that maybe they didn't ask each other or which weren't indirectly answered already. You know, I, I don't want to be biased, I want to hit Mike with one or two of the most difficult questions a Trinitarian who affirms the pre-existence of Christ might face. And likewise, I want to hit his opponent with one or two of the most difficult questions a modalist who denies the pre-existence of the Son with the Father might face. If you think you've got such a question for either Mike or for his opponent, email me at theapologetics at hotmail.com, and maybe your question will feature in the debate. Lord willing, the debate is being planned for early to mid-April, so be looking forward to that episode. It really should be a fascinating one. All right, well, I suppose that's enough of a uh, monologue. No doubt you're you're tuning into this episode to hear the interview with Dr. White. (laughs) So let me get today's promo out of the way. I finished with the promo rotation, and so I'll start at the beginning again with my friend Dee Dee Warren's The Preterist podcast.
1: Hi, this is Dee Dee Warren of The Preterist podcast, where I discuss biblical prophecy without the hype and sensationalism found in many evangelical circles. So if you would like to learn a different, yet completely orthodox way to view things such as the Great Tribulation and the so-called Rapture, please have a listen. The podcast can be found on iTunes and many other podcasting directories, or can be found directly at PreteristPodcast.com.
0: If you're not familiar with preterism, check out my interview with Dee Dee Warren in episodes 17 and 18 of my podcast, where we talk about preterism as a response to the skeptic's claim that Jesus was a false prophet. But I definitely recommend you check out DD's podcast as well. The Preterist Podcast is not only informative and educational, but it's funny and it's engaging as well. Uh, I mean that, really it is. And if you've just accepted what you've been taught about the end times by your pre- or mid-tribulational, dispensational futurist pastor, you might be challenged by what you hear on DD's show. Tune in by searching for The Preterist Podcast in the iTunes Store, the Zune Marketplace, or by going to www.preteristpodcast.com. And with that, let's move into today's interview. Where
1: can a dead man go? A question with an answer
0: only dead men know. But I'm gonna bet they never really feel at home if they spend a lifetime learning. It's my honor to introduce my guest today, Dr. James White, Director of Alpha and Omega Ministries, to talk about Roman Catholicism and authority. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dr. White.
1: It's good to be with you.
0: Before we get started, uh, Kent Morlock, who's the pastor of Communion Presbyterian down in Irvine, he told me that he recently saw you in Bellflower, and he told me that I should ask you about your purple laser pointer. <laughs> What's that all about?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, I love laser pointers uh the green one was was great uh for a long time and uh, but then I saw they now had uh, purple laser pointers and um, i don't know i just I'm a bit of a geek so uh, it actually doesn't show up quite as well as the green but uh there was a young lady in the audience that uh I was asking her which one I should use and she she definitely said I need to use the purple one so I did not <laughs> want to did not want to disappoint the young lady in the audience so that that's why I did that.
0: Sure, that's funny. Well, one other thing, I, I hope you don't mind me getting a little personal, but, you know, I hear you talk about it often enough, so I don't think you'll mind. I'm a competitive power lifter, and I got into the sport in large part so that I could lose weight and get healthy. And although I know your sport of choice is a different one from mine, um, my understanding is that you've also been on a weight loss journey of sorts. Can you tell us about that? The, the weight you started at, where you're at now, all that kind of stuff?
1: Well, at the height of my uh, weightlifting, I, I, I was up to the mid 250s, and, uh, uh, but I was a cyclist back in the 90s, and uh, I, I got back into that in 2005. That got me down to about 220 or so. But until I I learned the discipline of diet, and uh, which I did this past April, uh, spent just a few minutes with a with a book that uh, gave me the, the proper insights, and uh, decided that uh, that was something I wanted enough to to change a lifelong pattern of. Uh, the Golden Arches and uh, Taco Bell—that—that um, uh, that made all the difference in the world. If you—if you eat if you right, and uh, as the weight came off, then I could ride farther and farther. And currently on track, uh, my my riding year ends in the middle of June. To, uh, I'm shooting for at, at least uh, 8,250 miles. Uh, wow. 8,400 8, would be nice. Uh, I'll pass my all-time record, even back when I was a skinny. 30 year old uh, back in the 90s uh, I rode 6300 miles one year I'll, I'll pass that tomorrow actually so um, wow uh, and i 've still got a quarter of a year to go, so it 's um I, I hate to tell folks, but it 's diet and exercise yeah. <laughs> that 's what they 've been telling us for a long long time, and uh, you have to find out what works for you but uh i 've settled in, in the in the upper one seventies which is a little heavy for a cyclist, but I like being able to get my carry on bags into <laughs> uh, into the overhead without asking the little old lady in front of me to help uh, sure so i've 've tried to i 've tried to keep uh, a little little mass upstairs with the protein and stuff i'm i'm sure you're you're familiar with all the yummy proteins that are out there now and once you get to my age it looks from your uh, picture that you're probably considerably younger than i am but once, <laughs> once you get to my age you start losing uh, muscle mass just naturally so you really mm-hmm. have to work to try to maintain that it's uh, the lord gives us many ways of reminding us that we are uh, uh, not uh, eternal creatures in this <laughs> fleshly body and uh, it's a. Uh, it, it, it's a good battle, but it's a battle you're going to lose one way or the other, and uh, uh, that's that's what I do.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, you're definitely right. I'm I'm curious, what's the book that you mentioned?
1: Uh, it's not it's not even in print anymore. I had to get it. Uh, my my dentist suggested it to me. I had to get it used off of Amazon. It's called Optimum Sports Nutrition, and it was I, I honestly spent between ten and fifteen minutes with that book. But what I read was the diet section, and what he said made sense. And ever since then, uh, everything I've read has verified uh, what I had read there. And so I'm I'm now a whole grain uh, nut. I mean, uh, everything I do is, is whole wheat, whole grains. Um, and I've discovered that a lot of that veggie stuff, you know, like veggie bacon and stuff like that, is actually really good. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, just, I just always thought it would be terrible, horrible, and I just didn't even – you know, I was always mocking people for eating cardboard and all that stuff. I had like, never tried it. And, uh, it, it's actually a whole lot easier to, uh, to do that than to, uh, survive the results of eating that big quarter pounder with cheese. And, uh, <laughs> I just got back from California. In California, they have to, in the menus, in all the, in all the, uh, restaurants, they have to put the number of calories. They're doing that here now, that, too. Oh, I was shocked. I went to IHOP a couple mornings ago and about fainted. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I had no earthly idea. Uh, that you could take in 2,000 calories at one sitting. But guess what? You can. Very and, easily. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's true. Well, that's that's really good. Uh, we, we've got a lot of material to cover in a limited amount of time um, to cover it, as you're going to be hosting The Dividing Line here pretty soon. So I'm going to skip some of the introductory questions I might normally ask my guests. But for those listeners who because they're living under a rock or whatever, might not be familiar with you and your (laughs) ministry. Can you tell us about what you and and Alpha and Omega Ministries do, all the various ways in which you engage in in this ministry?
1: Well, you know, uh, you you don't have to actually just be living under a rock. Um, uh, We're we're a small ministry. We've been around since uh, 1983, so we've been around quite some time now, coming up on 28 years. Uh, But still, we're we're very small, and and new, new folks discover us all the time. Uh, Christian apologetics is a wide field. Uh, we, we initially started with a focus upon Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. That has expanded over the years. and In fact, you can sort of chart the, the ebb and flow of topics. Uh, it didn't take long. In fact, my first public debate was in August of 1990 with Jerry Mattetik's of Catholic Answers, and so mm. the Roman Catholic topic became uh, very important for quite some time. And starting in 2006, um, we really started focusing upon Islam as I as I began my studies of that very, very large field. And, and I, I don't know that I will ever uh, finish uh, that uh, in, entire project uh, because it, it's a huge thing to try to learn an entire hmm. religion other than your own. But sure. uh, that's what my focus is upon right now. That doesn't mean that we're not also still focused upon other things. I've, I, I did a number of debates on Roman Catholicism this past year, uh, debates on atheism and things like that as well. So they, they are related to one another. But my primary focus right now is in the Quran um, and related issues to the, the uh, Christian Islamic uh, debate.
0: Sure. Well, and of course, you've got dealings with KJV onlyists and stuff like that, too. But, uh, but you're yeah, definitely no slouch when it comes to ca- uh, Catholicism. Um, now, some of my listeners might not be very familiar with Catholicism. So beyond the specific issue we're going to look at today, this issue of authority, could you briefly summarize for my listeners some of its other teachings, which you and I would say most conflict with biblical Christianity? And, and, and the other question I have for you is, do they really matter? I mean, are we dealing with just another denomination or something which kind of as an institution presents what is fundamentally a different gospel?
1: Right. Well, that is the big question today. I mean, uh, as I think about the, the confusion that exists amongst evangelicals, and of course, I don't even know what that word means anymore, to be honest yeah. with you. I'm starting to wonder just how relevant it is any longer. Um, if, if Rob Bell's an evangelical, and, uh, uh, if non-Trinitarians are evangelicals, uh, I'm not sure if the term really has a whole lot of, whole lot of meaning, but. Universalist uh, to that, too. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, but, in in general, the the, the issue that uh, that we face is whether there is an identifiable means of identifying true Christianity or not. And for many people today, there really isn't. And that's why you see the ecumenical progress that has been made amongst evangelicals, and and why your average person in the pew is is either ignorantly bigoted against Roman Catholicism and will say, Oh yes, it's a false religion, out of ignorance and and that's not a, a, a proper basis for coming to that conclusion. Hmm. Um or they now view it as just a denominational difference and you know we're all just sort of on the same page and <clears throat> these issues of the gospel and stuff like that don't really matter. And even more troubling than that is the viewpoint you find amongst many leaders Within evangelicalism, uh, I call it the uh, the mere Christianity movement, where they've boiled the faith down to just such a the least common denominator perspective <laughs> that the gospel is no longer considered to be definitional the Christian faith, <laughs> and that therefore they can say, oh yeah, we disagree on justification, but we're united in believing that Jesus Christ died and, and rose again the third day. Don't ask us what that means, <laughs> and, and don't ask us what the application of that is, but we all agree on these things, and so we're all one, and we can uh, join together in political movements and things like that. Um, that's another major troubling area, but but obviously the, the primary issue with Roman Catholicism, on a on a formal basis, uh, is what we're going to be talking about, and that is the issue of authority. Uh, that's what gives rise to all the other differences, but. Uh, when, you, when you look at the, the fundamental nature of Roman Catholicism, it is a religious system focused upon one city and specifically upon one man in that city and his alleged authority from God in the form of the papacy. And over the years, the impact on the gospel uh, has been that you, you have a system that presents uh, an unfinished work of Christ that perfects no one in the concept of uh, uh, the Eucharistic sacrifice of Christ, transubstantiation, the Mass, etc., etc. Um, you you have a sacramental system with, with celibate priests with the authority to forgive sins and mm. to change the very elements of uh, the Supper into the body, soul, blood, and divinity of Jesus Christ, hence rendering him uh, upon the altar over and over again. Uh, yeah. Allegedly, representations of the one sacrifice of Christ, but... Um, uh, since it never perfects anyone, it can't be the same sacrifice as out of Calvary. So you, you have sacramental confession, you have baptismal regeneration, you have the concept of purgatory, the purging of sins, satis pastio. There's just so many things. But in every single debate uh, that I've ever done on those subjects, it all ends up devolving back to uh, the issue of authority because fundamentally Rome denies the authority of Scripture its fundamental and supreme authority because of the fact that she well knows that her theology, especially the theology that has been dogmatized over the past 200 years, then that would specifically refer to such things as the Immaculate Conception of Mary in 1854, uh, the the Vatican Council and the infallibility of the Pope, uh, the 1950 definition on the bodily assumption of Mary. Uh, These are clearly items that are not only utterly absent from Scripture, but they're utterly absent from anything that can even remotely be called historical tradition as well. Hmm. And so you you put all of that together, and you have to attack uh, the the validity of Scripture in that sense, in in the sense of it being sufficient uh, to explain to us what God would have us to believe, because Rome says, no, you need to believe these things, and you cannot do that from Scripture. So they have to attack Scripture in that way.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I find that this is actually the case with most, uh, um, you know, other gospels, you know, um, they, I've often said that, that the most problematic thing that i think that we can believe is that our authority is is somebody other than scripture because it's like blindfolding yourself and getting onto a bus you don't know where it's going and just accepting where you're being driven so you end up if you're a mormon accepting that the the prophet you know tells you that you can become a god or in the case of the jehovah's witnesses believing that you know there are two classes uh one that's going to live forever in heaven and the other on earth i mean this issue of authority seems to me to be really fundamental and, and most important at least when it comes to apologetics would you agree
1: Oh, most definitely. I mean, uh, every every false religion, uh, any sub-biblical Christian sect, any false religion, any cult, and, and there's ways of differentiating between all of those, um, they have to find some mechanism of usurping the supreme authority of Scripture. That may be through other Scriptures, Book of Mormon, Dr. of Gloria Price, um authoritative interpretational bodies whether that be the governing body of jehovah's witnesses um a charismatic leader uh the teaching magisterium of the roman catholic church uh, whatever whatever it might be um uh, their own unique translation of scripture for example is all often uh, uh, used as well so there's lots of different ways of doing this but you have to do it and it does uh, there there always is an ultimate authority and while Roman Catholic uh, apologists are loath to identify uh, the fact that they actually believe in this, the the only other option to sola scriptura is sola ecclesia, and that is the ultimate authority of the church, and that is what they believe. Mm-hmm. And, and you can demonstrate this over and over. They object every time I raise this this issue, uh, because I'm I'm basically saying, look. The arguments you're making against sola scriptura would be just as valid against your ultimate authority. Therefore, you're being inconsistent in making these arguments. They don't want their ultimate authority examined in that way. Hmm. Uh, I've only had one Roman Catholic apologist actually offer to debate something similar to that, and that was just recently, and that's Robertson Genis. And most Roman Catholic apologists do not consider him to be one of their number any longer uh, for various sundry reasons. But um, uh, Everybody else just just runs for the hills. Uh, they they do not want to attempt to defend sola ecclesia. They'll deny they actually believe it. But when they when they do that, just a small amount of pushing uh, causes them to to validate the accusation because fundamentally the final authority for them is what the Roman Church says. Right. Uh, they cannot say they're under the authority of Scripture because the Roman Catholic Church defines what Scripture is and what it says. That is the extent of the canon. And then the meaning of any individual text of Scripture is is uh, subjugated to the interpretation of the Roman Catholic Church. Now there are those who would say, "Yeah, but Rome has never defined any particular verse." Other people <laughs> say there is exactly seven verses uh, in the Bible that have been infallibly interpreted by Rome. Um, I know that Roberts Genesis said, well Rome could do that, it just hasn't chosen to do so. Well isn't that nice? <laughs> right. You know, I've uh, I've been looking for the inspired commentary. Wouldn't that be a great thing to have, you know, about a, a twenty volume set, the inspired commentary of the Bible? Then that answers all the questions yeah. and, uh, and and it's all over with. But Rome has not done so and never will do so for obvious reasons. Uh, because then you have to start defending those things, and that that doesn't really work too well for them. But likewise, you can't say it's that they're under the authority of tradition, because they get to do the same thing with tradition. This is tradition, that isn't tradition, this is what it means, this is not what it means. So they do believe in sola uh, ecclesia, and uh, anybody uh, who is going to try to overthrow Orthodox Christianity has to find some way around the big issue of authority.
0: Yeah. Well, so in contrast to sola ecclesia, can you kind of explain for us the history, meaning, and importance of sola scriptura? And since many critics of sola scriptura say the scripture doesn't even teach it, could you present for us a sort of positive bi- biblical case?
1: Yeah, that's 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 a big thing. A uh, lot of lot packed in there, and I, I doubt I'm going to remember uh, every every portion of that. But, okay. uh uh Sola scriptura needs to be defined properly. Uh, When when we define it, we need to to emphasize that what it's saying is that Scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith. We are not saying that Scripture, for example, is the only uh, source of knowledge of God because Scripture itself says uh, that God has revealed himself in his creation to a certain level. Romans 1 tells us that there is such a thing as general revelation and that it renders man unapologetus, without an apologetic, without an excuse, specifically for uh, giving thanks to God and recognizing that God is God, recognizing his power, his His divine attributes uh, on that level. It, that does not give us an exhaustive knowledge of God. I'm not one of those folks who believes that uh, you can uh, lay in your backyard on your on your swing and, and uh, look up the stars and, and you're going to figure out the Trinity from that. Mm. Uh, th- there are some folks who seem to think that that's up there, but um, I, I don't think that that's a biblical position to take. And so... You, you you need to emphasize that what we're saying is not that the Bible is an exhaustive uh, compendium of all of divine knowledge. It is not the only true and valid uh, book in the world. Uh, I'm sure there are fine books on semiconductor production uh, <laughs> that are true and right and proper. Uh, the Bible is not attempting to say that that's not the case. And I, I say these things primarily because the arguments that are, are made against Sola Scriptura often partake of that exact type of argumentation. Right. And and Christians, if they are not familiar and they have not thought through these issues, find themselves defending the un, untenable uh, positions being attributed to them rather than uh, dealing with the actual issues uh, of what Sola Scriptura is. And, and I have heard debates wherein... Uh, Christians, uh, defending the truth have, have just been run around the gum stump and made to look foolish because, uh, their opponents basically said, well, sola scriptura means that the Bible's the, the sole source of divine knowledge or the sole source of truth or, and it's so easy to, to refute those things. Right. What we're saying is that there is a particular nature to scripture that gives rise to a particular function of scripture. And that is that since scripture is theanustos, since it is God-breathed, since it is God-speaking, then it partakes of God's authority. And since it is uniquely that which is theanustos, there is nothing else which is theanustos. The church cannot produce theanustos, God-breathed revelation. The church itself, even as the bride of Christ, is subject to the voice of Christ, And while we possess divine authority in the proclamation of the gospel, it is something that comes to us only through our faithfulness to God's revelation and the proclamation of that revelation. Hmm. And so there is something fundamentally different about divine revelation in scriptures. Than you will find in anything else, including the traditions of the church. Now, Roman Catholic apologists are very quick to point out that we all have our traditions, and of course they're correct. Hmm. Um, there are many evangelicals who very foolishly uh, say, "Well, I don't have any traditions. I, I will never, I will never forget uh, the the radio interview I did with Dave Hunt back in 2001 after his book came out, What Love Is This?" and I I, he, he, he said something about John chapter six, and I said, Dave, that's your tradition speaking. That wasn't exegesis. And his response to me was, James, I have no traditions. <laughs> now, now a person who thinks that they have no traditions is the person who is enslaved to their traditions. Yeah. And, and because they don't even see that they're there, those traditions have become their ultimate authority, and they can no longer examine those traditions in the light of scripture. And so we need to recognize we have traditions and that there are good traditions. that We do not have to throw out the history of the church to honor scripture and to hold the sola scriptura. The reformers didn't do that. We don't have to do that. We all stand on the backs of giants. Mm-hmm. Every one of us has learned much from those who come before us. And so there are good and appropriate traditions that are enshrined in, in certain of the creedal statements of the church, certainly not everything that the first quote-unquote seven ecumenical councils said was true or anything like that, uh, and anybody who says that just hasn't read uh, the uh, those, those councils, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, but um, anything like that, uh, it, whether it be the Westminster Confession of Faith or the London Baptist Confession of Faith or uh, the... the 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 three forms of unity, Savoy, anything has to be subject to the higher authority of Scripture. The real issue is, is there an external tradition that we have to embrace that becomes the lens through which we look at Scripture? Or is God speaking clear enough in and of itself to function the way that God would have it to function for us and to be our ultimate authority and hence be the, the means of the testing? Of our traditions. Now, a lot of postmodernists would say, "Can't do it. Uh, we cannot escape from our traditions far enough um, to be able to examine Scripture in any meaningful fashion uh, without those traditions. We just can't do it. It, it's, it, just doesn't work." Um, I believe that at very, at the very minimum, we can affirm that the Holy Spirit of God is more than capable of communicating to us within our context that which God would have us to know. Uh, in the scriptures. and uh, Therefore, unless you're going to dismiss the role of the Holy Spirit Hmm. in his continuing work in the church, uh, I just don't think you can embrace the kind of skepticism that is rampant amongst many um, neo-evangelicals and, well, even, again, what does that word mean anymore? (laughs) Uh, Many people teaching in seminary today that would uh, that are standing in front, even even in conservative seminaries, they're yeah. standing in front of their classes and saying, look, we just cannot escape uh, the role of our traditions, um, this whole Sola Scriptura stuff. And that almost always leads, e- eventually, to someone saying, well, look, if we need tradition, we might as well go to the folks who have the oldest tradition, and therefore you see the people moving into either uh, Roman Catholicism uh, or Eastern Orthodoxy. Right. And... Uh, uh, Succumbing to the smells and bells temptation, uh, which I I fully understand. I sure. mean, uh, there's the, I I not only understand it on an, on an epistemological level, uh, but I understand on the attraction level. I mean, there's there are a lot of quote unquote evangelical churches today um, that are just on a on a uh, majesty uh, level deader than a doornail. Yeah. Uh, there's there's just there. You know that that's that's a whole other issue and I will avoid that particular sermon for, for this for this time.
0: Sure. Yeah, well so no that's that's good and, and I definitely agree. Beyond Second Timothy three sixteen though, which says that all scripture is theanustas, are there any other biblical passages you would point to in support of Sola scriptura? Of course I'm thinking of the Bereans. I mean would would you point to that as evidence?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, in the sense that the the Bereans are described as being more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, that they are being commended for what they did, and what they did was they recognized that God had spoken. Uh, They recognized the truthfulness of the apostles in their statement that what they are teaching and the proclamation of the gospel was consistent with what had come before, uh, but I think it is, the, the, the foundation of Sola Scriptura is found in a recognition of the nature of Scripture. Yeah. And so we look at what Paul says, we look at what Theodustas says. I think Warfield's work on Theonustas remains extremely important on that level. We, we need to, uh, uh we have that available on our websites, available online and, and stuff. I would, I would highly recommend to anyone that they read Warfield's article on the meaning of Theodustas, its history. It really has not been uh, excelled uh, since it was written long ago. And we need to recognize that that is a, a, not just an idiosyncratic statement found in one place uh, in a book that uh, people like Bart Ehrman says wasn't written by Paul anyways, <laughs> uh, but is is in fact fundamental to the entire Pauline corpus and to the entirety of of the New Testament, because sure. he is functioning on the very same level there uh, that Jesus is functioning on in Matthew chapter 22, when he says to the Sadducees, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, and then he quotes from the Pentateuch. Now, normally when you hear someone say, have you not read, you expect the next line to be what was written to you. But it doesn't say what was written to you, it is what was spoken to you. Now, this was written uh, over a millennium earlier. And so the the conjugation of the terminology there in Matthew chapter 22, I think is extremely important where you have Jesus giving in passing, not even, I mean, that's not the focus of his, of his response, but it is just, it is in passing a recognition of the fact that scripture is God speaking. And that, of course, is reflected by, by Peter as well, when he says that, that men, and there is a textual variant here, and it's an important textual variant, because the King James says holy men spoke from God. That, I don't think that's correct. Um, the, the holiness of the men who spoke isn't the point. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Mm. It is that process of the carrying along of the Holy Spirit and the fact that what they're speaking is from God. Uh, It is not the the individual holiness of an individual because, I mean, there's lots of folks who speak in Scripture that, uh, A, we may not even know anything about their personal holiness in the first place, or B, there are people that said a lot of things in Scripture that were anything but holy, for that matter. Hmm. Um, And so we we need to be, I think, aware of that. But all three of those texts uh, take us back to the exact same uh, concept of the nature of Scripture as being God speaking. And so epistemologically speaking, uh, what can have a higher authority right. than, than God speaking? Uh, and, and so the challenge has to be, see, we need to be very careful because the, the Roman Catholics say, well, you have to prove that only Scripture is the ultimate authority. Right. I was and just this, about to ask that. A, yeah, this is a... This is a, a a mechanism. It's a dishonest mechanism. It, it I'll be I'll be stronger. It's a despicable mechanism. It has been used to confuse the simple-minded. It is a, a, the perfect example of what Paul warned us about 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 clever speech, because when you think about it, the 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 onus the the burden of proof should lie upon the Roman Catholic who is making the positive assertion. That his tradition, which he will not even identify for you, cannot <laughs> identify for you exhaustively, cannot give you a dogmatic definition of. Yeah. But he is telling you that his tradition is in some way, shape, or form theonustos, if it is equal with Scripture in its authority. Right. Uh, and he does not want to shoulder that burden. And so uh, I think there was some meeting in the offices of Catholic Answers back in the uh, Mid 1980s, uh, where they came up with this uh, this mechanism, this uh, this line of look, let's let's try to get these people to prove that there is no other uh, infallible rule of faith, and when they can't do it, then we'll just simply smuggle ours in without ever having to prove anything at all, and they've been doing it ever since then. Right, and I don't care how many debates you hear. Carl Keating or Patrick Madrid or Jerry Matatics or Jimmy Aiken or Tim Staples or any blah 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 just and the the myriad of people that have come after them that are just parroting their particular lines um, they they're always doing the exact same thing and uh, we need to recognize that and challenge that and uh, that's certainly one of the reasons why for some reason we can't seem to arrange debates uh, with any of those guys anymore at all
0: yeah no definitely. Okay, well, so with that biblical case for Sola Scriptura in mind, th- th- this idea that the Bible consistently talks about itself as being God-breathed and doesn't say that about any, any other person or, or tradition, with that in mind, I want to challenge you with uh, some of the arguments that I've seen Catholics make in defense of their <laughs> view of authority and in attacking ours. And what I'm going to do is begin with the argument from early church history. So uh, many Catholics will point to the writings of the church fathers as evidence that their view of tradition and authority followed immediately after the New Testament, whereas sola scriptura doesn't arise until 1,500 years or more later. Now, I'll admit that this is something that has even troubled me sometimes when I read some of their writings. And, and I guess my question for you is, um, what do you make of, this, of, of, the, of, the, of the church fathers who sometimes spoke as though Apostolic tradition was equal in authority alongside the scriptures going so far as in, in some cases to even say that the Bible isn't capable of being understood outside of this tradition. I mean, what do you make of that?
1: Well, uh, first of all, you have to define what apostolic tradition is, and it's amazing uh, how often uh, Catholic apologists get away with uh, citing uh, early church writers in that way without ever dealing with their own definition of what apostolic tradition is. Athanasius, for example, uses that exact phraseology in regards to apostolic tradition, and every single time he does so, if you examine the context, the tradition he's talking about is sub-biblical. It is derived from Scripture. It is not some extra-biblical thing that you enforce upon Scripture. It is, in fact, a summary, just as Irenaeus said that it was, a summary of the central teachings of the Christian faith. For example, that there's only one true God, well, hey, you know, that's, a, <laughs> that's totally unclear in Scripture. I, I never would have found that in, uh, in anywhere in Scripture, even though it's repeated over and over and over and over again. The, the initial arguments, for example, Irenaeus with the Gnostics, <clears throat> what they're arguing against is people who are actually using Roman Catholic forms of argumentation. The Gnostics were saying they had a secret tradition uh, that was necessary for you to know. Uh, for you to have a proper understanding of what Scripture is. And you had to go through their initiatory rites and so on and so forth to get this secret tradition. And Irenaeus, Tertullian, and others argue, no, uh, there is a Christian tradition, but it is known by everyone. Tertullian, for example, uh, points to uh, 2 Timothy 2.2 and the fact that uh, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, pass on those things which you heard from me in public openly to men who are capable of teaching. And by that says anyone who says you have some secret, unknown, unpublished, unidentifiable tradition, these are false teachers. That's exactly what Rome says. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Um, nobody in the early church was functioning on the epistemological and authoritative uh, position that Rome holds today. Nobody. There was no one at the Council of Nicaea that believed epistemologically what a modern, faithful Roman Catholic believes. Uh, about the authority of the Pope, about purgatory, about Mary. I mean, the list is very, very long. Not a single bishop at the Council of Nicaea believed what you would have to dogmatically dogmatically believe to be a faithful Roman Catholic today. So no one can tell me that the early church functioned on the foundation of... A papacy and an infallible leader in Rome and so on and so forth. And that's why Newman had to develop the development hypothesis is he knew that that was the case as well. He knew that he had to liken it to the acorn and the, and the oak tree and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Hmm. So when you look at phrases in the early church fathers, uh, don't, don't just see, there's, there's two things going on here. The majority of Roman Catholics have never read, um, more than a few paragraphs in a row of any patristic source because they're reading secondary sources. They're, they're reading, uh, the, the, the quote books that are produced by Roman Catholics, like Jimmy Aiken's new book, uh, where you might get a paragraph or two, but you don't get anything more than that. Uh, that's what's so neat about the, the, the Webster King, uh, three volume set, uh, Holy Scripture, is that, uh, you, you get these long blocks. Well, okay, I recognize that a lot of people today, don't like to read that much. Mm. You know, we like we have a short attention span. Well, the problem is a short attention span when it comes to patristic sources will always lead to an <laughs> abuse of patristic sources. Yeah, it's true. It, it, that's just the way that it works. That's how they've gotten away with what they've gotten away with. Um, and so when you actually look at how uh, at what they were arguing, you can make a very strong case, uh, even though they were not arguing against. Uh, the modern Roman Catholic system that we have today, and we, we need to be careful not to try to cram them into um, some kind of an argument that, that they were not actually dealing with, you can make a very strong case for the highest view of Scripture on their part. And this concept of apostolic tradition needs to be weighed in light of the context in which it is found, the arguments in which they were engaged, um, and how they themselves came to the conclusions they came to. and And that's why I... Again, strongly recommend that people look at the much fuller works of someone like Webster and King. Uh, I I love seeing uh, David King's in my chat channel all the time. And and every few days he'll say, James, look at this. And all of a sudden, uh, like just yesterday, while I was sitting right where I'm sitting right now, I'm in the Dividing Line Studios, uh, I said, James, you need to see this. And up across my screen uh, comes a a whole uh, three or four paragraphs of Greek. And so I have to scroll back and have to, I don't read Greek nearly as fast as I do English, <laughs> and so I, I, uh, you know, uh, go through it. And uh, that's what that's what David does, is he sits around and he reads uh, early church fathers, and then he tracks down their, their works in Minge and, and gets the original languages. And I'm certainly hoping someday he's going to put out maybe a fourth volume to that series with all the uh, uh, addendum of material. But the fact is, you uh, if you dig in, You will not find these individuals teaching what modern Rome teaches about uh, the subject of authority. You will see the acorns of development as various writers. For example, uh, I've used this example many times, uh, when Augustine uh, gives in to the the pressures placed upon him uh, for the state uh, to begin to suppress the Donatists. That's the beginning of what you're eventually going to see. Uh, in the, the 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 sacral state and the use of the sword and the suppression of heresies in the in the medieval period hmm. the 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 beginnings are found there in a departure from biblical truth, but uh, certainly he never dreamed of the applications that would be made of just a few statements that he made uh, in regards to the parable about compelling them to come in. Uh, resulting in the Inquisition or things like that. It never never even crossed his mind. Yeah. And in the same way, uh, some of the writers in the early church used arguments that I certainly would never use today and that their opponents probably threw right back in their face. Actually, at the time, we don't necessarily have what their opponents' responses were, but um, people people sometimes develop arguments that aren't, aren't the best arguments to continue using over time. Uh, but the reality is the idea of a secret tradition, Uh, That uh, goes back to the apostles that we can draw upon uh, to define such things as papal infallibility, purgatory, uh, indulgences, all the Marian dogmas. When you can find, for example, seven uh, popes teaching contrary to dogma (laughs) developed uh, a thousand years later, all of that argumentation just falls flat for the fraud that it is. And yet that's how Rome gets passed having to do serious historical defense of its position because it can't do serious historical defense of its position. The early church did not believe what a faithful Roman Catholic has to believe dogmatically on so many different issues.
0: Sure. Are, are there any specific works that you could recommend for us um, that deal with the church fathers and Sola Scriptura or Catholicism?
1: Well, yeah, uh, uh, like I mentioned, the three-volume set, uh, Holy Scripture, uh, the, the Pillar and Ground of Our Faith, by Bill Webster and David King, is is the first and foremost one that I would uh, point people to. It's up to date. Uh, it will direct you to the classic works that have been done uh, in the past, such as William Whitaker's uh, Disputations of Holy Scripture, uh, Good, G-O-O-D-E, uh, his three-volume set, um, there's the 19, well, no, no, 1880s. It was republished by Baker in 1950. The Infallibility of the Church by George Salmon. S-A-L-M-O-M. Uh, all of these are, uh, tremendous works. Uh, we have the Whitaker volume available. I wish Salmon would come back and print. You can still sometimes track it down here, there, and everywhere. Um, and, uh, all of these, uh, works, uh, go very much in depth and are very, very useful. Great insights. I I try to uh, review George Salmon's work every little while because every little bit because it's it really is useful in, in uh such clear thinking and the demonstration of, of the bankruptcy of, of the Roman position and the inconsistency of the argumentation. But that's why they get away with it is, you know, before before we started debating Catholic answers, they are running around primarily debating uh, Calvary Chapel pastors, and with all due respect to the non-denominational <laughs> denomination, uh, the vast majority of Calvary Chapel pastors have absolutely no knowledge of church history at all. Yeah. And when we first started doing debates with uh, with Catholic Answers, there was just this hue and cry that we would dare to cite the early church. Um, but the reality is, um, the early church is on our side, not theirs. Mm. Their quote books don't, don't show that, but the reality is, that uh, their own, that there's, there's, a, there's a chasm, you need to remember, there is a chasm between Roman Catholic uh, historical scholarship and Roman Catholic apologetics. Uh, the vast majority of Roman Catholic scholarship today is quite liberal. And the reason for that is they recognize that the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, especially in regards to the papacy, Mary, all the, the priesthood, all this stuff, is a development over time that it's not the primitive teachings of of the New Testament and things like that. They recognize that, but the, the Roman Catholic apologists can't take that perspective, <laughs> sure. and so they have to come up with a different way of defending their position. and And you'll always hear uh, Catholic apologists saying, "Well, those are just the liberals and so on." Well, yeah, you know, we've got our liberals too. Thankfully, when I look at our liberals, I can say that's not even Christianity. They're stuck with it because their Pope won't get rid of them yeah. and keeps putting those liberals on the Papal Biblical Commission. Uh, I mean, just a good example of this in regards to Sola Scriptura was a debate that took place in 1993 in Denver, Colorado. Carl Keating and Patrick Madrid uh, debated two fundamentalist Baptists at a Baptist church. And uh, it it was an absolute uh, disaster. It was just just a, a, a tromping. Uh, the, these, these two fundamentalist Baptists should never have, have put themselves out there. It almost split the church. It was, it was horrible. But one of their arguments they used during that debate, which they've used many times before, um, which again I think came out of that secret meeting sometime in the 1980s <laughs> in the Catholic headquarters, um, was, how do you know Matthew wrote Matthew? Yeah, and these two poor fundamentalist Baptists are going well because it says here in my King James Bible, the Gospel according to Matthew. You know, and it's like ah, and uh, which of course is not a part of the earliest, uh, you know, text. That that's a, that's an editorial thing, and and so they just got you know massacred on that. Well, the reality is that the Papal Biblical Commission has made it very very clear that they don't know who wrote Matthew either. Huh. Uh, the, the whole idea of Mathian, uh authorship is not something that is, that is uh, a part of Roman Catholic dogma. Hmm. And I think a lot of people are going to be very interested in this new book that just came out by uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, Pope Benedict, um, because he takes some very liberal views. I and mean, if you dig into his, his uh his writings, he takes extremely liberal views concerning the authorship of the scriptures and things like that. So they get away with it because they were debating people who can't hold them to the fire, and now they know there are people who can hold their feet to the fire. Well, of course they avoid debating us <laughs> like the play. Right. Uh I, I mean, have you noticed Catholic answers doesn't do much in the way of debates anymore. Hmm. Uh they who are they debating? uh they 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 know they have standing challenges from folks now uh that they know they cannot defeat and therefore they've they've changed their their approach and their outlook
0: true yeah i can understand why well, he, well, here's another argument. You mentioned the 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 uh Matthew being the author of um of well, Matthew. Well, that that's sort of similar to this next challenge that I've heard Catholics often make, which is that if it weren't for the church, we Protestants wouldn't even have the canon of scripture. They'll they'll say that it was the church which decided which documents were to be included in the canon and which weren't. So just by opening our Bibles, we uh we are in fact appealing to the authority of the church. What's your take on this argument?
1: Well, uh, when it's used by roman catholic it is a it is a self defeating argument on on many grounds uh first of all of course the primary difference we have with rome on the subject of the canon in regards to the apocryphal books you can make an extremely strong argument uh that the roman catholic position on that that particular issue is not the position of the apostles it's not the position of the new testament and therefore you have rome uh, dogmatically defining something uh, that is in contrast to and contradiction to uh, apostolic practice. What's more is, when the Roman Catholic uses that argument, they're generally saying, look, you need us to define the canon for you. But when did Rome finally define the canon from a dogmatic perspective? april of 1546 (laughs) now is someone actually going to argue that for 1546 years after the birth of christ no one could make a meaningful theological argument because nobody knew what scripture was right well that's obviously absurd uh that that's that's not the case but it is the case that the first dogmatic definition of the canon is from april of 1546 and so uh, how do they deal with that how do they how do they deal with that question um I, I was. I, I did a debate with Jerry Mattetix. uh I did two debates with Jerry Mattix back in. I think again it was '93 or so, '92 uh, somewhere around it. Yeah, no, it was '93 at Boston College. And after the debates were over, we were we were supposed to be on a radio program. We were told that 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 had been canceled, and so I didn't didn't go to the radio studio. Well, lo and behold, I'm driving around uh, uh, that next day and and we had to tune the radio station in and they're going well we don't know where James White is he was supposed to be here blah blah blah, blah. so we were deceived or misled or something i don't know but so i called in and uh, we ended up having an interesting discussion and on that particular call i asked jerry maddocks a question that no roman catholic to this day has ever been able to answer to any meaningful level and that is i had not thought of it, it i I actually have a picture. of my I'm sitting on the bedside on a phone doing this thing, and <laughs> it, right as I came up with this I, this idea, someone took a picture of me. And I asked I asked Jerry. I said, Jerry, if we need to have an infallible authority to define scripture for us, then could you please tell me how the believing Jewish man knew Isaiah and Second Chronicles were scripture 50 mm. years before Christ was? Born? And it got quiet. <laughs> and. I, you know, dead air on dead air on radio is not a good thing. And finally, the host goes, "Well, we need to take a break." And, <laughs> and, uh, th- he could not come up with an answer. Yeah, because I, 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 some of the answers that have been given, I love this one: the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, you have to go to the high priest and cast the holy lots to know whether Isaiah and Second Chronicles are scripture. Wow. Uh, some have said, "Well, well, the the infallible magisterium of the Jewish people." Well, that's good because they rejected the apocrypha so much for your infallible magisterium. Right. Um, there just isn't any way within the Roman Catholic scheme to answer that question uh, without self contradiction or an admission that well, they really didn't need this external this external authority. So. What we need to recognize, and I, I have a whole chapter on this in, in my book Scripture Alone, is that canonical authority uh is not derived from uh the church defining something and saying, okay, this is this is scripture and this is not. Uh even when Marcion comes along and starts uh, doing his thing. Uh there the the issue of canon was already in the mind of the church and they were reacting against uh, someone coming along and and basically cutting the canon up. Hmm. Canon is a function of inspiration. Uh, the reason a canon exists is because God has inspired some books, but not all books. Hmm. If he had inspired no books, there would be no canon. And if he inspired all books, there would be no canon either, because it would be worthless, because all books would be inspired by God. But a canon exists because God has engaged in inspiration, and therefore... As soon as he did so, the canon came into existence. When I wrote my first book, I did not have to, uh, when I finished the last few words of The Fatal Flaw, which is my first book, I did not have to then open a second document in my word processor. And This was so long ago, I don't even know what word processor <laughs> would have meant. But, uh, I did, was using a word processor. I didn't write it on a Selectric. It was, it was a little bit after that time period. But anyway, uh, I did not have to open another document and type the canon of works of James White for the (laughs) canon to come into existence. I knew what it was. Uh, Maybe nobody else knew at the time. Um, And I'm the one who has infallible knowledge of of the canon of my works. I mean, we wonder about some folks, whether they wrote it or not. Uh, You know, plagiarism is always an issue out there. But I have infallible knowledge of the canon of my writings because I know what I myself have written. And so the infallible canon is a part of God's knowledge. And so the question we need to ask, we need to approach the can from a theological perspective, not from just a historical one. The question we have to ask is: Is there any grounds for us to believe that God would have His church to know what it is He has inspired? And I believe that there is. Uh, I, I present this in the book in regards to texts of Scripture that these things were written of old, so that you might know. There's a there's, a, it, 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 I believe that God will put out just as much effort in leading his people to an identification of and a recognition of his word as he did in inspiring it because it has a purpose in the church. But even the early church, I loved how Augustine put it, when Augustine addressed the issue of the canon, and of course you know he argued about the canon with Jerome, uh, and Augustine was wrong uh, because he didn't know Hebrew and he, he thought that the Hebrew canon included the Greek Septuagint and hence the, the apocryphal books, and it didn't, and he wasn't aware of that. But the point is that he said That the canon is given to the church by the Holy Spirit. Not Not that the church creates it. Not that the church has the authority even to define it. But that it is a gift. It is something that is given to the church by the Holy Spirit.
0: Okay, well, let's let's shift gears from the practical and historical arguments against Sola Scriptura to the ones which we are probably most concerned with as Protestants, the ones which originate from Scripture itself. And what I want to do is look first at 2 Thessalonians 2.15, where Paul tells the Thessalonians to stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And he says something similar in First Corinthians eleven, two, praising the Corinthians because they held firmly to the traditions. So it seems it seems that in addition to his letters, which we would call Scripture, the Apostle tells his readers to follow also traditions taught by word of mouth. Is, is there anything to this line of reasoning where a Catholic would say that that's an indication that tradition is authoritative alongside Scripture?
1: Well, that certainly is their argument, and uh, it is an argument they repeat over and over again. Uh, in fact, with with great uh, fervor and and effort. Uh, specifically, they will look at 2 Thessalonians 2.15 and say, This is a command. How are you fulfilling this command? Uh, how are you uh, holding to these traditions that were taught by word of mouth? Uh, we can do that because we have the oral tradition, but you cannot. Of course, there's, there's uh, too many problems with that to, to, to get into, but the most obvious one is this. Uh, how do they know that any tradition that they are holding was delivered by the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians? This is a tradition that was delivered to the entirety of the church. This is not some secret thing that had only been given to the bishops. This is written, it says, So then, brothers, this is to the entirety of the church, stand firm and hold the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So this was something that was known publicly. And that is why uh, Rome recognizes that they cannot trace those things that they have based in tradition back to anything that was ever taught by Paul, to the Thessalonians, or the Romans, or the Colossians, or anybody else. Well, of course, he didn't go to Colossae, but uh, to any other places <clears throat> where the Apostle Paul went, they cannot uh, trace uh, their modern uh, traditions back to that apostolic period, and so while they might say they are holding to those oral traditions, what they're doing is they're holding to what people hundreds of years, sometimes a thousand years later claimed had been delivered by the apostles. But there is this huge gap in documentation uh, and providing any evidence that these things were actually believed at that particular point in time. But what's more is the meaning of Second 2 Thessalonians 2.15 does not support this kind of perspective because this is Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians and so there were two forms in which he had spoken to the church he had been amongst them and preached to them and he had written to them and so what he's talking about here is the gospel if you look at the yeah. terms stakeate and krataita uh, they are used elsewhere for example in the Corinthian correspondence of standing firm in the gospel and that exactly is what the context is so uh, verse 14 to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So what they're being told to stand fast in is not some uh, some myth that develops uh, a thousand years later, like the bodily assumption of Mary or something like this. Uh, But what they're told to hold fast to is the gospel itself, which had been delivered to them, in two forms at that point, in the apostolic preaching in Paul's presence, as well as in the written form of 1 Thessalonians that had been uh, read in their hearing as well. And so uh, these texts that talk about these traditions, once again, if we just take the time to examine what they are, they will fit perfectly with Jesus' own teaching in Mark and in uh, Matthew chapter 15, Mark 7 and Matthew chapter 15 where uh, coming up against the traditions of the elders when Jesus is attacked, why don't your disciples follow traditions of the elders? Jesus' response is that they are hypocrites because they are holding to uh, their traditions and voiding the scriptures. Yeah. This was specifically in regards to the Korban rule, uh, which the Jews believed came from Moses. They believed it was a divine tradition, according to the Mishnah. And yet the reality is uh, that Jesus uh, held, hold that, held them accountable for testing even those traditions that they thought came from God uh, by the higher authority of Scripture itself. And if we want to follow Jesus' example, then that's what we're going to need to do as well, and we have to test Rome's traditions, even those that she claims come from God, in that way.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, and, just, and just in short, what you're saying is that the traditions which... Which Paul is telling them to hold firm to is the gospel, uh, but communicated in two different forms. It's not two separate things. One, the gospel in written form and another, these separate traditions communicated otherwise.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, th- this, they, they attempt to, to, uh, stick into this one text, this massive foundation of all of these dogmas, unknown, uh, in church history, many of them. Uh, clearly, the result of evolution over time. Uh, that is there, is, there is no meaningful way of, of actually asserting that that is the essence of what Paul had delivered to the Thessalonians. Yeah. Uh, it's, just, it's just not possible, and yet that's what they are forced to do. Because look, the scriptures just n- never point us to the authority system that Rome has developed over time. Uh, there's so many places. When Paul spoke with the with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, and he warned them about the difficult time to come, he Wrote to Timothy and said the same thing, uh, that there are going to be deceivers that are going to uh, they're going to be coming. And he tells the Ephesian elders, the men are going to rise from your own ranks. So many times, and he could have said, now don't worry about it, because all you have to do is look to the successor of Peter in Rome. Yeah. Uh, he could have addressed the uh, people to them. He never ever does. Uh, because it is a much later development utterly unknown to the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's not an apostolic tradition, it's falsehood.
0: Yeah. Well, okay, so here's another one. Uh, after his resurrection, uh, Jesus was eating the disciples in John 21. And in verses 15 through 17, Jesus repeats to Peter three times, or, or almost the same thing. He says, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, Ten my sheep. Now, this was an argument that I had never seen before, but according to one resource I found, the Vatican has said that it was upon Simon alone that Jesus bestowed this jurisdiction of chief pastor over his fold in these words. Do you think that this argument has any merit?
1: Well, uh, I would direct anybody to the uh, uh, seven and a half hours of debate that I did on the subject of the uh, papacy uh, back in 1993 with Jerry Mattix. We did uh, over three hours at Denver Seminary uh, one night, and then the next night we did over three hours at a local Presbyterian church. And the first night was the New Testament evidence. The second night was the early church or patristic evidence. And in the first night, uh, we went over the key text, Matthew chapter 16, John 21, um, the Lucan passages that have been used by various popes uh, over the centuries uh, to establish some kind of Petrine primacy. Uh, not only did we discover that these were... Uh, Ideas that were unknown to the early church. In other words, it's it's ironic that in each one of these texts, whether it's John 21 or Matthew 16, the modern Roman interpretation of these texts is not the patristic interpretation of these texts. Hmm. In other words, the early church did not see what later Romanism uh, sees in these in these texts. And if I recall correctly, and I didn't I didn't pull out my notes from that debate and and I apologize to everyone that I do not remember everything that I said 17 <laughs> years ago, right off the top of my head. But um, uh, and and these, by the way, that wasn't the only debate we did. There was an excellent debate with uh, with Mitchell Pacwa, uh on Long Island uh, on these very same issues, where we got to go into even more depth on these particular topics. And all these are available at, at aomin.org if someone wants to hear. Both sides. It's not just one side talking about this, but when you have a debate, you got both sides. And that's, I think, where you really find out whether these arguments carry any water. Um, but as I, if I recall correctly, the John 21 text is first used in that way by a pope in, in his own self-defense. And uh, if I recall correctly, it was at least uh, five or 600 years down the road. Uh, before wow. you have that, um, remember there was no single bishop in Rome until the me- middle of the second century. The the early uh, form of of church government in Rome was a multiplicity of elders, just as you have in the New Testament. And so that tells you what the 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 people who were taught by the apostles thought uh, about uh, church government, even there in in the city of Rome. And so uh, yeah, Rome Rome has come up with some some amazing. Jesus of uh, uh, even uh, Peter's being reestablished here after his his triple denial of Christ. Uh, Jesus is praying for him, and and the the text in Luke. It, it, what's amazing is if you actually look at any of these texts in their context, they they all militate against the Roman usage. But that's why you have to deny solo scriptura, say only the church can interpret these things, because even the foundations of Rome's own authority claims uh, collapses when you actually examine the text upon which it is based.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Uh, there are two more that I want to look at, though. Um, the ones that are maybe most infamous and you mentioned one uh, Matthew 16:18. you know the one that we just talked about John 21 it's very obvious at least to me that they're reading something in there the original meaning of the text has nothing to do with this kind of primacy but I could see why Matthew sixteen eighteen is is, is a little bit more troubling um, Jesus says to Peter I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and obviously Roman Catholics understand this is teaching that Peter was given here absolute spiritual authority over the church which he then passed on to his successors so Do you see it this way?
1: Uh, No, I I certainly don't. Uh, The the subject of Matthew chapter 16 is the identity of Jesus, not of Peter. And as soon as you change it to the identity of Peter, you are completely missing uh, the text and isolating it from its actual meaning. First of all, when Jesus says, And upon this rock, kai epitaute te petra, uh, it's not the issue of Petros and Petra that is relevant, uh, despite the fact that uh, uh, Protestants have been saying that for a long time. It is the fact that it is a shift from upon this rock. It's no longer direct address of Peter. Yeah. Uh, it is. It is now referring to something else. And what is this? This rock? It is the confession of faith. Even even Augustine said it was this the confession of faith. In fact, the, the majority of the early church never interpreted this text. And, and in fact. Again, it comes out of Rome initially to, to interpret this text in another way. Uh, uh, Cyprian points this out in regards to Stephen uh, and Stephen's application of this to him to himself. But notice when people say, this is being given to Peter right now, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And these keys are only given to Peter. It's singular and all the rest of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, it is singular. Uh, but the verb is future. Doso is future. I will give to you. This isn't happening right now. Right. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Um, when does that happen? There's, there's only two choices here. Either Matthew never records Peter alone receiving these keys, or much more likely what you have is Matthew 18, where all the apostles together receive this authority of binding and loosing, which is, of course, what a key does in the first place. Yeah. And that's all related to the proclamation of the gospel. So the idea of taking this text taking it away from its identification of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, and that that is the confession that binds Christians together, not Peter being that foundation. Um, and then missing the future tense, and then uh, trying to cram all, all the Petrine primacy into that and ignoring the fact that even the early church didn't understand it in that way, uh, is again the, the problem that you're dealing with when you're dealing with Roman Catholicism.
0: Yeah. You can you can definitely tell they're desperately trying to find support for their view of the papacy which has developed over time rather than being found from the beginning.
1: Well, and let's and in fact let's let's maybe start wrapping up with this because uh, I'm running out of time here sure. but uh, w- what we need to understand is that the the development of the papal system over time that does take place during the medieval period was based especially upon Fraudulent documents, hmm. things such as the Donation of Constantine and the pseudo-Isidorian Decretals. When you look at, for example, uh, Thomas Aquinas's defense of the papacy, the vast majority of his patristic citations we know today to have been bogus. They were made up. They don't exist, hmm. and even Rome to this day now recognizes that for example the pseudo isidorean decretals are exactly that they are they are apocryphal they are pseudepigraphal they are false they do not represent the view of the early church and even though history like the like the japanese tsunami has wiped away the foundation of this of this system what's amazing is it's still hanging there in midair Mm. Its foundations are gone. The 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 foundations upon which it was built historically have been washed away, and yet the system is still there. Yeah, uh, that's what people don't seem to understand: is that is that it did develop over time. It had to fight for its supremacy. Uh, it had to go through amazing things like the pornocracy in the ninth century, uh, the Babylonian captivity of the church, where in the where, where I mean, Rome didn't even have the papacy for a while. It was in Avignon, France. Uh, for decades, it wasn't even there. And then you had two popes, and they were anathema- anathematizing each other. And then, and then the Council of Florence comes along. And then you have three popes, and they're all anathematizing each other. <laughs> uh, you, you have uh, then. You have to have the Council of Constance that finally gets rid of all three of the popes and and reestablishes the papacy in Rome and and uh, all of these issues uh, that ju- just give the lie to the idea that you have this unchanging church and this has always been the understanding. Uh, it it just it, it doesn't work and yeah. uh, history history demonstrates that's the case.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, I want to let you go, but before we wrap up, I've got to get your input on First Timothy 3.15 because it's really bugged me for a long time, where Paul says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar in support of the truth. So there you go. The church, not the Bible, is the pillar in support of the truth. Does this support? The, <laughs> you know, this is the way I've heard it. Does this support the Roman Catholic view of tradition?
1: Well, let's uh, let's first of all remember that Paul is talking about the local church here. He's not talking about the church at Rome. He's talking about the local church that Timothy's a part of, and that that local church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, what does a pillar and a foundation do? Uh, The pillar and foundation holds something else up. And so it is God's intention that his people, his, his church, uh, hold forth the truth of God that has always been the case, uh, wherever it was, even in times of persecution, even to this day. The pillar and ground of the truth in Islamic lands uh, is the church. Uh, those poor persecuted people, those, the dregs of society, the people whose leaders are frequently in prison. Uh, in God's wisdom, that is the pillar and foundation of the truth in that place. That is what is holding up that truth. That does not make it the truth. It does not say that the church, therefore, becomes the definer of truth uh, in the sense of having some kind of extra-biblical authority. There's nothing here uh, about uh, the church being in competition with the truth, but it is God's will. And This over against uh, wacky people like Harold Camping today that said the church has ended and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Um, uh, It is the church's glorious role to trumpet forth the truth, and where does she get that? She gets that from Christ's speech. Where does she identify Christ's speech? Well, of course, that which is the anus das, that which is the scriptures. And so there is no contradiction of, of Paul saying to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth, and then saying to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 uh, that, uh, Timothy, you need to, to remain convinced of what you've come to know uh, from your youth and that the scriptures are able to make you wise into salvation and that scriptures are, of course, that the man of God, to do everything he needs to do in the church of God, is thoroughly equipped for that work by one thing, that which is Theanostas. The church is not Theanostas, but the church has access to that which is theanistos through the scriptures.
0: Yeah. So he's not telling Timothy that the church is the foundation of truth, but rather that it's that which holds up the truth contained in scripture.
1: Well, there's the, both proclaimed. terms that are used. Uh, the, yeah, the ESV says a pillar and buttress of the truth or foundation of the truth. Uh, the, both terms can be used uh, that way. Um, in, the, the stulos and uh, hedrioma of of the truth is that which holds something else up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is it is that which, which gives the foundation uh, to these things. And uh, uh, what did Jesus say? He would build his church, and he has done so. Uh, down through the ages, not the way that the world would think, and certainly not in the way that Rome has uh, done in building huge monuments to its popes and everything else. But it is the the fact that uh, people continue to confess that Jesus is the Christ and bow the knee to him 2,000 years later in, in completely different cultures and completely different languages that is one of the greatest evidences not only of God's existence but of the truthfulness of the Christian faith.
0: Okay. Well, before you go, I, you know, I want to listen to the dividing line here in about 15 minutes, but before you go, one of the things I like to do with my guests is give them an opportunity to share a, a sort of parting message. Um, what would you most like us to see? Uh, what would you most like to see us take away from the discussion today?
1: Well, I, I think uh, we need to recognize the, the centrality of the authority of Scripture. The first temptation was uh, verily, half God said. And that temptation uh, has has been transformed into a thousand different versions since then. And uh, there are so many different ways in which the New Testament is being attacked today, from from Bart Ehrman and others saying we can't know what it originally said, to uh, the theological attacks that we can't understand it or it's not sufficient. There's just so many. I I really do believe that a uh, conviction of the trustworthiness and sufficiency of scripture is a part of the work of the spirit of god and if we will but expose ourselves to that word if we will but uh, memorize it we will love it the way that the the psalmist uh, gives us example in psalm 119 um, and and spend much more time in exposure to it than we do to the world seeking to conform us to its image and its thought. uh... we will um, uh... i think be, be firmly grounded indeed and we'll have a firm foundation upon which to stand to uh, resist the temptations of the world and the, uh, the attacks of the world and be uh, people who truly bring honor and glory to God by the proclamation of his message.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, where can my listeners go to get connected with Alpha and Omega Ministries and, and to get a hold of the various resources you've got available?
1: Well, www.aomin.org. Aomin.org is our website. Um, The the blog there is the primary way that I communicate with uh, with folks, other than through uh, Twitter and on Facebook as well. But uh, the the blog there is very important, and of course, the online store has uh, has the MP4s, MP3s uh, of debates now going back uh, as early as 1990s. So we've got um, I've done about 108 of these now, and about 40 of them were with Roman Catholics. So. uh, If you want to hear both sides in dialogue and debate, uh, we certainly can provide a lot of that information.
0: And what days and times can my listeners go to AOMN.org to listen to your webcast?
1: Uh, Well, it depends on uh, whether you're amongst those folks that change their clocks twice (laughs) a year or not. Uh, We here in Arizona uh, honor time. We recognize the sun did not (laughs) stand still in the sky on Sunday, and the stars did not freeze in their place. And so uh, uh, we just always are on mountains. Standard Time, and we have people coming into our chat channel right now going, hey, where's the dividing line? Well, you all changed your clocks and we did not. So uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's 11 a.m. on Tuesdays and 4 p.m. on Thursdays, Mountain Standard Time, and uh, uh, wherever that uh, translates to, where, wherever you are and whatever time of the year it is, that's when we do the dividing line. We'll be doing it in just a few minutes.
0: All right. Well, thanks a lot for joining me today, James. I really appreciate it.
1: All right. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. God bless.
0: God bless. All right. That was Dr. James White, one of the foremost apologists of our time. And I hope you enjoyed and got as much from the interview as I did. Now, I'm not sure what I'm going to podcast on next week. I'm still trying to schedule a day in time with Jamin Hubner to talk about inerrancy. And in the not-too-distant future, I'll be having on an anonymous guest to talk about IHOP, that is the International House of Prayer as well as some repeat guests to dive deeper into some of the issues I talked with them about in their previous appearances. Chances are, though, that next week I'll be teaching all on my own, and I hope that you'll join me for that next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. Until then...